Today is October 27, 2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Art Regal, who is Associate Professor of Neuroscience at the Medical University of South Carolina. Hi, Art. Hello. Or Arthur. Should we call you Arthur? Art is fine. Art is fine. Great. His lab looks at uh, the cellular regulation of dopamine-dependent behaviors with, um, I guess, a recent emphasis on understanding the various modulators of dopamine neuron firing pattern and plasticity at target nuclei of the system in response to stress, both in normal animals as well as in the context of addiction and relapse. And I mentioned that because I'm assuming we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, around the room, we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we've got Matt Wynott. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Um, so before we get into the stress part of this, because I know you guys are all interested in that, I, I wonder if uh, you guys can say something about the VTA neuron uh, the VTA dopamine neuron is an archetype at this point. Everybody talks about, you know, these these neurons as having these, you know, really specific response properties, but yet they seem. I mean, all this stuff about the behavioral complexity that the system drives, it seems like a lot of this is generated by the neurons themselves. They're building their own diversity, or are they just a diverse set of neurons? I mean, there there seems to be so many different factors that are are are, are sort of part of this constellation of things like the intracellular, you know, distinct in intracellular mechanisms, receptor diversity, target diversity, all this stuff. So can you just talk about this idea? Because do we still have an archetype? I think we do in the sense that it can be a useful tool. You can communicate with other people and talk about dopamine neurons. And in a general way, everybody knows the perspective you're coming from. But I think in the last couple of years, there's been um, probably the last 15 years, there's been a growing appreciation for the complexity of the the inputs to these cells as well as where they go. And we also know that the, the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, is a very heterogeneous population. Even within that population, the cells are not really the same. So can um, you say something about that? Have we, have we talked mm -hmm. about that here? What do we know about the diversity of just the, the some, dopamine neurons? Okay. Oh, well, I think what we know probably originally started with Stephen Lamell when he was in Johan Roper's lab back in 2005, perhaps, um, where they did actually a pretty simple experiment. They just injected retrograde beads in various parts of the brain known to be projection targets for dopamine cells. And essentially what they found... In the most simplest way, is what they found is that um, different dopamine cells, different populations of dopamine cells, project to these different regions of the brain. So it wasn't the case, and what they what they never found was any overlap in beads. So in a few of the experiments, they would they would inject, for example, green beads in one location and red beads in another location, and they always found that there was there was separation between green and red beads. So that was the, the one of the initial um, studies but, where, we, but, where we started yeah. thinking there are different dopamine neurons projecting to different places. Now, after that, then people started recording from them, and Stephen did that. What he found was that cells that, for example, project to cortex not only are different from cells that project to accumbens, but they have very different physiologies. Uh, some had much more um, expression of H currents. Some expressed dopamine transporters, and some almost didn't have transporters. Uh, so I think that was the beginning of 
people thinking about, oh, well, maybe not every dopamine cell is... And what about, I mean, does that translate to a, you know, the, a specificity of inputs, each different population having? Have we demonstrated so, that? Yeah, so that is now part, the second wave of studies of people looking at specificity of inputs. And that's more, most recently coming from now Yoshida's lab, where he's been finding that different inputs come into different neurons. Or there is this, at least this, this, really rich um, um, set of inputs, different inputs coming into dopamine neurons. Uh, what we still don't have right now is whether the different inputs of dopamine neurons are selective based upon where those dopamine neurons project to. I mean, that's now we're really getting into some kind of I guess one would call a combinatorial explosion. So what about the inner What about the GABAergic neurons? Is, is, is there a discussion of diversity in those guys? Sorry, you wanted to say something. Well, not even going to the GABA neurons. It's, I, I mean, I sort of speak on what, you know, Carlos was talking about was, you know, arts data, you know, sort of argues there's species differences as well. And that's something that is sort of often overlooked where, I mean, you might talk about the differences between the, uh, the mouse and the rat and uh, sort of the projection targets and what you saw with the electrophysiological properties. We based our finding a lot on the original Lamel paper, and they did a wonderful job sort of uh, opening the door for these new projections. And so we naturally assumed that we would see something very similar. And uh, maybe in hindsight, we shouldn't have, have thought about things that way. You know, in the anatomy in the past, before um, Lamel's paper, Essentially, we were sort of landlocked to the anatomy. We were using white matter as targets to anchor point. We would move so many microns out from that, and that's we artificially defined our area. But we didn't really sample the entire BTA uh, because we didn't have a good, good hold on that. Now that we've sort of been freed of that, um, we can move out a little bit. Some of the differences that we've seen in the past, uh, we see a larger... The cells that we look at that are innervating prefrontal cortex or different subregions of the core seem to show fundamental differences than what has been reported in the mouse. So in some cases, uh, differences in firing pattern, the H currents like Carlos was talking about, and their synaptic responses. So I think the Lamel work was really outstanding, um, but we shouldn't overestimate. To me, a mouse looks like a furry little rat. But they're, they're clearly two different species. And if the long-term goal is to somehow translate up to a, a human, then we should embrace both of those species and, and use that as a tool to understand the underlying biology. So that brings up sort of an, another interesting sort of development in sort of the complexity of the dopamine system. There's been, you know, a flurry of, you know, recent papers, um, Sabatini's group that have suggested, and, you know, Marissa Morales as well, suggesting you know, we don't just have dopamine neurons and GABA neurons. We've got these glutamate neurons. We've got these glutamate neurons that, you know, dopamine neurons that may also release glutamate. These dopamine neurons may also release GABA. But all of this has been done in mice. Is there any evidence to suggest that maybe that's a fluke of mice? Or maybe this is something that uh, also carries over into rats? Or does anything that you've done sort of look potentially looked at that or no? I think really highly of Maricela's work. And one of the things she pointed out in a couple of her papers is uh, the caution to people using mice as a, as a model system. In a couple of her manuscripts, she made a point where she was talking about the B-glut-3 and um, addressing exactly that. Is it a dopamine neuron? Is it a glutamate neuron? And how it's very, one can be easily fooled 
into using viruses or other approaches like that to selectively transfect into a certain subpopulation. And it turns out that the neuron may have expressed message and then therefore could be infected by a virus. You would be fooled into thinking it was a dopamine cell when it actually could be a glutamate cell. She also, um, in a very detailed way, outlines some of the differences between rats and mice. Um, both tools are, are good and should be used, but it's uh, it should be used with caution. So, but in, in terms of the species differences, do those differences in, in potentially in the circuit do they have a kind of a behavioral correlate? Do we see big differences in, in reinstatement and in, in dopamine dependent behaviors? Is there any kind of is there are there discrepancies in the behavioral literature? Maybe you can touch on Is that. that because you don't really. Well, the Southern Administration. I mean, if we're going down that avenue, uh, as far as things go, it's just more of a pain in the butt to do in mice. I mean, they're tiny. And so in general, the self-administration literature is heavily focused on using rats because it's much easier to be done. And But a lot of the <clears throat> sort of transgenic manipulations have been done in mice. And it's not saying that people don't do self-administration in, in mice. There are a lot of groups who are doing excellent work on it. It's just it isn't as prevalent. So, so you're pointing out the patency issues of working with a mouse. And um, on a practical level, if you can only keep 50% of your test population catheterized, and it's it's hard to get your job done. Um, but I also think that, you know, in terms of there's been examples of social defeat. There's been examples in stress models where the rats and the mouse do not uh, completely line up. But then I guess that sort of leads to the, the, the type of stressor. Um, I guess right. you, you were doing some interesting stress models. Could you speak a little bit about that? And So the stress model that we're using right now is, uh, is predator odor, uh, TMT. Uh, fox urine. Um, it's attractive in some respects. That's fairly straightforward and simple. Um, it's not a chronic, you could use it as a subchronic five-day sort of treatment. We're using it with a single exposure. We're getting robust changes in glucocorticoids. Well, I, I wanted to get before it, we talk really deeply about this. This is, the what you're doing is uh, is incredibly interesting because there's been a fascinating set of studies that look at the impact of stress on dopamine pattern behaviors, and there and, and yet we really don't have any good stories. And these are all kind of behaviorally driven approaches, um, and there's a lot of interesting complexity in them. But you're kind of you're you're sort of pulling the lid off the system and looking at the molecular players and the mechanisms and the sort of the synaptic level stuff that's happening. How is it that you've taken how people have been talking about this stuff from the top? It's always interesting to me when people take essentially what's a top-down question and then apply these bottom-up approaches. So I want to kind of understand your take because you have kind of decided to, to, to look at CRF as the transducer of stress, reducing the system, right? Because there are a lot of different kinds of stress and, and that's been what's creating a lot of the complexity in the literature, right? So your model is what it sort of lines up to what kind of stress in terms of what people have seen in the past. Like how, how is your um, work sort of, how does it uh, sort of build upon what's been done? So I guess two things come to mind. Uh, one is we are focusing right now on CRF receptors uh, because they've has a fairly large literature base where people have blocked certain types of CRF receptors and seen that uh, that can ameliorate some of the operant responding and the drug-seeking type behavior, um, and they've delineated that down to a certain brain region, the VTA again, and so that's useful. It gives us a starting point. 
Um, I think that that field is going to continue to expand, though. I mean, stress is much more than simply CRF receptors. It's probably multiple waves of stress-sensitive So, like, social defeat stress. Has, has Is there an index of, like, what are the molecular players involved in that? Because I know some of the work has been done on using that as a sort of as the stressor model, right? I think the social defeat model is, um, is very popular right now because it's robust. It's dependable. It produces a clear depressive-like phenotype. Uh-huh. It um, produces changes in CPP. Um, and some of the data we presented today probably... Um, I think fit into that. I think that it's it's one way to model stress. No. So the odor is is TMT. That's fox odor urine, mm-hmm. right? So fox urine odor. Um, it's been used as a model for PTSD, um, and I think one of the advantages of that, in the sense that there are different types of stress. Some stresses you can actually foot shock the animal. It's robust, dependable. Um, it can be a little challenging because you have to titer it per animal, and that may even vary day to day. But it produces a, a real-time rapid response that has really helped move the field forward. Stress can have a couple different players. You know, there can be an immediate response to stress that can involve norepinephrine, really important. But there can also be longer-lasting, slower uh, mediators that come on bad and board that can include things like glucocorticoids. So if you use an alternative model like TMT that's been used for PTSD, you may have the opportunity to look at second or third waves. I also think that there are different types of stress. We're all facing stress in and out, day in and day out. But that doesn't completely only uh, explain sort of diseases like depression and addiction. Often it's a a sort of a cumulative wear and tear on the body. Um, I guess guess what I'm interested in is how does this uh, TMT... um, I guess translate in the opposite direction than we normally think of translation. But how does that how does that ref, get reflected in the diversity of dopamine neurons in the midbrain? So if we know that there are different expression levels of SK channels and different levels of HCN channels on different populations of dopamine neurons, does that mean that stress affects dopamine neurons these different populations in different ways? Um, yeah, so that's kind of a hard question to answer. I mean, you know, the TMT model is useful because it produces a innate sort of fear. It's very dependable. We don't have to activate a, a nociceptor to generate it. Um, I think once you've got circulating glucocorticoid levels, the old literature sort of suggested that only some cells within the BTA express those receptors. And there was an idea put forward that those were the dopamine cells that innervated specifically the shell. Um, that may not be completely true. It may be a larger expression of dopamine cells down there. Um, so in that sense, the TMT is really just a means to an end. You can elevate circulating levels of glucocorticoid in a very uniform way for an enduring period of time and look to see what sort of cumulative role that takes on, on the dopamine cell firing. We're not at the stage really where we can talk about subsections of the VTA, you know, regarding SK1, 2, or 3, although, you know, past work from John Edelman clearly shows that there are differences in terms of firing and their sensitivity. There could also be changes in calcium binding proteins that regulate the SK response that could be inside. Um, And there's a whole host of really interesting issues in terms of cellular mechanisms that regulate the SK channel. So I think for us, the 
one possibility is that the glucocorticoid, this increase in the glucocorticoid concentrations are actually not just having direct actions of the glucocorticoid receptor, but they're potentially also stimulating the release of CRF from terminals. Uh, CRF is also synthesized and released from nerve terminals within the VTA. So in addition to its uh, well-appreciated action on the HPA axis, there's actually, it's not just a stress response, it's a local mediator. It's supposed to be there under normal healthy conditions. So we have a, like, I guess we, I guess you answered this already. We don't have like this complicated Venn diagram of the cells that express SK1 or 2, uh, 1, 2, or 3, and cells that express glucocorticoid receptors, and then which ones express CRF or which terminals express CRF and which terminals do those go um, project synapse onto which dopamine cells. Right? We try to synthesize the existing literature and we right. incorporate both mat rats and mice. It looks like, you know, we used to think of CRF as being um, having a highly privileged position and only being found in certain locations. And that's probably not true, not just in the VTA, but really any of the other four or five brain structures that you look at. It seems to be localized to many, if not all, nerve terminals, GABA, glutamate, acetylcholine, serotonin, also postsynaptic, right? Um, in addition to that, you've got different receptor subtypes, R1 and R2. So I, in my vision, I don't really think of CRF as, um, as directing or stimulating anything. I think of it as orchestrating existing inputs that are coming in to drive the dopamine cells. Yeah, so you, your right. 2014 paper looked kind of carefully at this heterologous um, this sort of GABAergic mediated. Uh, can you talk about that? Actually, so that was an early paper. We uh, that was based on really some a uh, couple important papers from uh, the Roy Wise group out at NIDA, and he had found some data that was uh, really some results that were really unexpected in the sense that he was looking at a different receptor subtype, the CRFR2, and what he had found was activating CRFR2 was able to. Um, have a, was able to ameliorate uh, Q-induced cocaine seeking in rats, and that seemed to have some sort of actual mechanism, I believe, down in the VTA itself. I think it was, it was antagonizing. It was the um, R2 and the binding protein. The agonist yeah. that hit the R2 and the binding protein, they were sufficient right. for reinstating um, uh, drug seeking, and I think if you block those, you could prevent uh, um, stress-induced reinstatement. Okay, I think you're right. Um, so there was two papers together, um, and even the authors, you know, didn't couldn't completely wrap their head around that. They couldn't completely understand the role of the CRF binding protein. And that all seemed to be based on essentially pharmacology, which, yeah. as a pharmacologist, I feel uh, comfortable in saying that pharmacology has some real strengths, but drugs are also kind of dirty, and we need to be be careful. So in that sense, I think it also opened up the door uh, for the CRFR2 receptor, which. We followed up on, and we asked some pretty simple questions. Is there any reason to think that R1 and R2 were somehow um, gating glutamate release? And the answer was yes, but it was kind of complicated. It seemed to be that the CRF receptor was not just found on glutamate terminals presynaptically. It was also found presynaptically on GABA terminals. And the CRF molecule, by interfacing with that presynaptic autoreceptor, was facilitating GABA release and activating the GABA B receptor on the presynaptic glutamate terminals. So it's a, it's a, um, a little bit of a difficult study because you're always one synapse away from where the action is. 
So is there any evidence to suggest that CRF has sort of a homogeneous effect on these neurons that project to different areas, or maybe is there sort of any evidence of diversity that CRF might have different effects depending upon the, the projection target? Because in some of the original studies, um, uh, the, the Mark Unglis paper in Neuron way back when, um, you know, demonstrated some neurons, uh, and again, this was in mice, you know, you put on, you know, doses of CRF1 micromolar, you saw, um, you know, increase of these NMDA receptor uh, currents, but it was really only in a subset of neurons. And so there was this sort of big question, I remember back in the day in the Bonchi lab of what's giving rise to this. And I'm, I'm just curious if you see any evidence that maybe there is different effects you see depending on where the neurons project to. We haven't looked at NMDA in particular, um, but some of the data that we talked about today is focused in on the CRFR1. And the goal was uh, recent work by Klaus Bizek's group has sort of pointed out that manipulation of R1 can knock down reinstatement and uh, locomotor sensitization for cocaine and alcohol and things like that. We were sort of surprised. We expected to see, based on our past work, that R1 would be sort of ubiquitous and modulate both the dopamine cells that go to the core and the shell, and that's not uh, really what we found, actually. It turned out in one population, CRF activation uh, could facilitate the glutamate inhibitory current carried by the SK channel. But in another population, CRF didn't really seem to do too much. But surprisingly, when we would apply an antagonist, antagonist for the CRF receptor, we could then get a large potentiation of the current. So it's kind of complicated, but reading between the lines, what it says is that CRF receptor was actually already tonically active. And it was providing some sort of auto inhibition on what we think is a very important glutamate SK channel current. What are, what are the kinetics of the R1 and R2? I mean, these are sort of, these are peptides. These are sort of happening on a kind of a, and are they very different from one another? Uh, no, the molecules are the same. Um, there's but, the, but the kinetics, the, 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 uh, the specificity is maybe a tenfold to 15-fold difference between the receptors. So then it gets into the question of how can you detect that in a brain slice, and the answer is no. A hundredfold, even a thousandfold is sometimes difficult to detect in a brain slice. Maybe in a cell culture system you could distinguish between them, but we really can't. Uh, the antagonist that we work with at very low concentrations it takes a long time to get into the slice, but it actually works pretty well, and it's selected at those concentrations. That's the CP154156 molecule. So. We've confirmed that with another compound as well, so we feel pretty good about that. In terms of the role of CRF, if that's what you're asking for, like R1, um, I think R1 actually is probably promiscuous to some degree. It's coupled with, uh, with GS and PKA. We feel pretty good about that. But there's lots of examples in the literature showing uh, PKC effects as well. CRF R2 is also... Um, promiscuous and does a lot of different things. So once you've gotten to the point where the receptor is active, especially if it's tonically active, um, then there's lots of downstream amplification cascades that can be turned on. So your, you know, your evidence suggests that there's this tonic activation of CRF. And are we potentially thinking about CRF inappropriately? I mean, it's, we care about CRF because it's you know, an activator in the you know, fight or flight HPA axis. And, you know, it's canonically thought of as, as, I mean, it is a stress-release neuropeptide, but perhaps a CRF actually having these just normal maintenance roles in normal dopamine neuron function, 
And yes, we're looking at it in a stress context, but you know, it, the fact that it has a tonic regulation, does that sort of suggest maybe it's, maybe it's sort of a key player? You know, why, why do we have to think about it only being released during stress? And it might be released in a lot of other circumstances to sort of maintain the normal homeostasis of the, the mesolimbic system. So I think you're making a great point, and you know, we'll start out at a larger, slightly larger um, point of view and then sort of drill down on that. I think one of the important things is that even though we're using the stressor, it's very natural because it's an aversive substance or treatment to think of that as being negative. And stress is kind of like pain. It gets a bad rap. It's aversive. It's noxious by design because it's there to be a signal to tell you to do something that will have an evolutionarily advantageous sort of end result. Um, but just because it's an aversive stimulus does not really mean it's bad. And the data that we talked about today, in the end, all of the counter-adaptations that we saw in response to a single predator outer exposure of 10 minutes, I think all of those would tend to dampen down incorrect opening release and terminals to some degree. So I think what we actually measured 24 hours later was not a pathological response. I think it was an adaptive, which is actually a good response. It's surprising to me the magnitude of that response and how long it lasted. And then also, like we talked about, the variation between two cells in close proximity. But if that same stressor, you were exposed to that same stressor repeatedly and it failed, well, then that certainly moves you into a different direction that would be pathological. Can I touch on one thing that you, you said in the talk was that the behaviorally you saw this diversity in how animals respond to the TMT. And, you know, how you end up responding to stress sort of is also influenced heavily by the context in which you experience the stress. Can you avoid it? Do you have controllability over it? You know, there's a large body of work we're talking about, you know, Steve Myers' work, where, you know, stress or controllability and how it influences the dopamine system. And I was wondering if you, you had looked at the animals that sort of talk about the different sort of responses that you'd see with TMT. And did you ever sort of correlate that with any of the electrophysiological changes you saw that happened in the dopamine system in that... You know, is it solely adaptive or maybe it's, you could see, anyway. <laughs> so I think the work of Steve Meyer is absolutely outstanding. And I think in that study, he showed that two animals that were exposed to the exact same stressor would perceive it very differently, depending on whether or not they were in control, even if it was the exact same magnitude of shock or stress they experienced. But it was that volitional, I'm making the choice that seemed to make the difference. And then he goes on to actually then correlate that with physiological changes, which I thought were just absolutely outstanding. In our case, we're you know, exposing the animals in a single closed environment. They are going to be exposed. They do not have a choice. We have tried other assays uh, without success, uh, honestly, where we would give the animals, um, they were in a compartment, a little bit like a shuttle box, and they had the opportunity to hide or to move away from it. Um, but the responses between the animals that we saw to this very simple and robust stressor really highlights the difficulty of this as a, as a research question, because it was all across the board. Some animals would attack the piece of filter paper that had the, stretter, the predator odor on it. Um, others would bury it, which is a natural stress defensive posture. Others would freeze, which is also a, a stress sort of posture. Some didn't seem to mind it whatsoever. So, uh, you know, what can you take from that? It's interesting that if you go and sample those animals, and we've done that, looking at trunk blood measurements for glucocorticoid levels, you know, cortisol is up through the roof. Cort corticosterone is up through the roof on all of them. And provided the samples are taken in a uniform way, it's pretty consistent. 
but the behavior is actually very, very difficult. Other people have looked at behavioral responses to stress-resilient and stress-sensitive. I think that's a really interesting area of work. But also, um, you know, it's beyond where we're at right now. We're asking much simpler questions. So when you characterize some of the synaptic profiles of these dopamine neurons from these animals that had these very, totally different behavioral responses to your TMT stimulus, they're, I mean, they had pretty uniform profiles, right? I mean, they all kind of, I mean, they were very different responses, but, you know, based on the different, um, you know, the SK versus other stuff. But the, if you were to segregate the animals based on their behavior, you wouldn't really see a difference, right? These are all pretty um, robust. I think our endpoints are more simple than the behavioral, um, you know, the, the um, response to electrical stimulation and the currents that you measure is pretty uniform. That's the strength of that system. We looked for correlations with the animals' responses, and we couldn't see anything that was uh, obvious. I think those questions are important, but um, at the cellular level, I think our endpoints are uh, sort of a nice starting point. So these are things that are going to be pathway, sort of more pathway delimited. This, this Probably. Overall, yeah. Probably. What about just different inputs to the cell? So rather than just stimulating electrically, um, which I guess, I guess when you do an experiment and you do electrical stimulation, at least graduate students, what they'll do is they'll just stimulate as high as possible to get the largest response they can get, right? Um, and so which, what that means is that they're stimulating every input that's, that's within the influence of your stimulating electrode. But if you perhaps use an optogenetic strategy where you could dissect or, 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 or at least selectively stimulate inputs, say, only from subthalamic nucleus or inputs only from cortex or inputs only from RMTG, for example, do you think then you might see some differences? So if, if it is a circuit effect, right, Right. does it change the weight of these different inputs on the on the how they affect dopamine? Neurons? I think it absolutely must. You know, for our experiments, when we did electrical stimulation, to avoid saturating the system, we would run I.O. curves and back it down to 50 or 30 percent of max, and that's where we would take our drug measurements. But that's just sort of casting a wide net. You're absolutely right. In other studies that we've got going on in the lab, we have looked at inputs to the VTA from the dorsal rafe. More recent information, we typically associate that with serotonin. But again, uh, recent work from uh, in rats and mice from Maricela Morales indicates that the majority of that pathway is probably not serotonin. It's actually a very strong glutamate input. We can stimulate those uh, using um, uh, opsins and activate those terminals. And in the same stress animals that we see, we can also activate an MGLU-RSK channel current. And in those same cells, we can see a potentiation of the SK current when we apply CP154. Um, so it's, it parallels what we saw That's before. That's the antagonist? That's the antagonist. Yeah. But these are sort of slow, tedious um, studies because you're dropping beads into one area that will travel back so you can identify the dopamine cell and dropping virus into another area to examine and activate the inputs. The second set of studies is looking at inputs to the VTA from the LDT, and we think maybe that those are innervating the that's part of our long-term goal. And this is following up on work uh, that other people have done in mice. 
but we would like to examine that in the context of stress. But it's it's preliminary, and we're not uh, we're not sure about what we're seeing yet. Thanks for joining us, Art Regal. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.